You're listening to a DM podcast. Let's go on yeah, a trip. Let's go on a trip. Yeah, baby. It's not too bad. What was the question again? <laughs> okay, let's go. I'm Angela Caterns. I'm Ian Rogerson. And welcome to Suddenly Senior. This is a podcast series for those of us who've reached a certain age in life. That's right. You can join if you're not our age, but it'll be a lot more fun if you are. <laughs> so strap yourselves in, check your blood pressure, light your spliff, pour yourself a small bevy, and let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Ivor Davies had an unusual path to pop star status. His musical training was classical. I think there was an oboe involved as well, and maybe some bagpipes. And he even did a little stint at the ABC Training Orchestra at one stage. But he went on to pioneer in Australia's electronic music scene with his band Ice House, clocking up a ton of hits here and in the US and in Europe. Ivor Davies, welcome aboard Suddenly Senior. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> very nice to have you here. Did you ever th- do you ever think you'd see the day when you would be on a podcast called Suddenly Senior? Uh, look, I, I'm I'm not in denial anymore. I think um, various bits are falling off, so why not? You're on this platform. You are allowed to discuss your ailments if you have. Yeah, any. first up, we always do it. The first couple of minutes, you're allowed to say what's what's sore. No, no. Well, it, well everything's sore. Um, no, my my. I was thinking about this morning. I was thinking, you know, when I travel because I've just got back from doing a show in uh, North Queensland. And uh, I have a very particular regimen um, whereby I have three sets of medication. So I, I have a set of medication, like my, my touring leather coat is really half a pharmacy. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and then I have a whole duplicate set in my um, cabin bag in case my main case goes missing. And then I have, you know, my, my standard toiletry bag in my main case uh, which has a third set of exactly the same medication. <laughs> so you're covered. So um, hopefully, in spite of all the airline's best efforts to lose everything that I'm carrying with me, um, if I have to overnight it somewhere, I've got the trusty pharmacy and the leather coat. Excellent. Uh, and, and do the drugs help, Ivor? I think I'd probably be dead without them. Oh, um, okay. I think that's pretty true. God, it's interesting, isn't it? So, such a change from the 80s, you know. <laughs> you were worried about anybody finding the drugs and now you want somebody to find the drugs so you can take them. Uh, yes, I'm thinking of having my medications regimen tattooed somewhere <laughs> on me. So. <laughs> In although, case I <laughs> although can I say, you weren't a classic rock pig ever really, were you, Ivor? Oh, I kept quiet about it. I oh, think you? probably. <laughs> You're always stylish. Yes, that's right. Yes, so you'll never know. I could have been a, I could have been a lot worse than I was, and I, I think quite early on we kind of had our Sid Barrett type members, and um, they're, they're a bit of a wake up call, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were a very early adopter of technology in music, weren't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know you used a, a Fairlight. You must must have been one of the you know first people to to ever actually own one. So the thing was, I mean, you lived through this period of the very late 70s and the early 80s and a whole lot of things, apart from the fact that the Australian pub scene was sort of firing at a ridiculous rate, Mm. we just had Double J open up, which was incredibly um, influential. I remember just sitting for hours just listening to the radio because that station, you know, DJs could play what they wanted to play. There was some incredibly interesting stuff being brought in on import. 
Um, we had all that going on. But then we had also an incredible explosion in music technology. So it wasn't just, I'll get to the Fairlight in a second, but it was a whole bunch of stuff. So, for example, our first keyboard player came with a Mini Moog. Now, a Mini Moog was a revolutionary machine, but you could only play one note at a time on it. And then at the end of the um, 80s, they, there was a new contraption called a Prophet 5, and I've still got that Prophet 5, and it was revolutionary from two points of view. First of all, you could play a five-note uh, chord on it, um, and you could also store your sounds in it as well, which previously you couldn't do. You had, um, in our keyboard player had to dial up every sound that he wanted to use on, in between songs. So wow. it was amazing. And then there was, of course, the Lindrum machine came along, Great Southern Land features, which is a song from uh, 1981-82 of mine, features the Lindrum and the Prophet 5, which I still have. But then our management had offices up in King's Cross and they were constantly being burgled by junkies, so this was a problem. So while I was away on tour, they decided to move their office and it moved into the top, um, the upper story of a two-story building in Rushcutters Bay and they called me in for a meeting and I didn't get to the meeting upstairs because I got to the front door and there was a sign on it that said, CMI Fairlight. And believe it or not, they took gave me a guided tour and I knew about these machines, these magical, mystical machines. And they took me out the back to where literally there were a whole bunch of engineers with soldering irons and circuit boards, building them directly beneath our manager's office. Wow. And I went racing up to that meeting and I said, I cannot believe what they're doing downstairs and these machines because they gave me you know, a whole guided tour of what it could do. And I said, I have to have one. I have to have one. I have to have one that catches their $32,000. Now, I just bought a house in Sydney for $60,000. So that was. Wow. <laughs> that really is. That's a flashback in itself, isn't it? That was half a house. So, yes, I, I got that Fairlight and it became and remained my main workstation for right up until I think probably close enough to 1990. So that was a very long time for a piece of technology to be the kind of building blocks of your main workstation, as it were. And Ivor, um, now that you're a senior, are you still mm. up to date with technology? Are you still comfortable on computers? Are you, are you, are you adept at, you know, editing and photoshopping and all of that sort of stuff? Uh, no, I've left the building some considerable time ago, and um, <laughs> and what I've become very, very good at is is delegating. And so I know just enough to be dangerous and to talk to other technicians in a kind of way that makes me sound as if I actually know what I'm doing when in actual fact I haven't got a clue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've got incredible people on our crew. We've been working with the same crew now for pushing 14 years because we... we we stopped playing for about 16 years and then we the thing that got us back uh, on stage was our our tour manager from 1986 came up with the idea of sound relief i don't know whether you remember oh, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the concerts in melbourne and sydney running parallel as fundraisers and he rang me up and i said i've had this idea and michael gudinski is putting it all together and uh by the way uh in spite of the fact you haven't played for 16 years you're headlining sydney and uh, were, were you scared uh, you're terrified. And also, at that, recognising at that point, my daughter would have been 14 or 15 and my son was about 12 or 13 and they'd never seen us play. Because oh. um, I kept all that quiet while they were growing up. I think I stopped touring when my first child was six weeks old mm. and just, you know, completely stopped. 
And so they never really saw, they, I'm sure they didn't have a clue what I actually did. But during that time, I wrote a ballet and I did a whole bunch of other stuff. But, you know, they wrote the piece for the Millennium and but they'd, they'd never seen a full-blown concert. So that was the first time. You know, so that was the SCG. 40, they were there in, in amongst 40,000 people. And seeing their dad. I mean, it, it's amazing that, that moment where the penny drops with your kids, where they actually go, oh, my God, you're not that lame-ass who sits around the house all day. You used to do things. Well... I don't know quite what they were thinking. It was a really strange night because it was absolutely pouring with rain. I mean, driving rain. And when they came backstage after we'd come off, I mean, they looked like two drowned rats for a start. But the look on their faces was just complete shock. Oh. <laughs> were they proud of you? I think, yeah, I think shock was more in operation than pride. <laughs> I just don't think they actually kind of believed what they'd just seen. But anyway, we, we, we've been working with the same... Um, crew ever since and that crew are incredible really because they're operating these days incredibly sophisticated computerized mixing consoles and um, LED screens and um, and computerized visuals and yeah it's become very 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 um, highly technical and I couldn't keep up with that stuff even if I tried and it's kind of pointless really because there's such specialized jobs that yeah. you know mm. you, you just really have to rely on having fantastic people around you. You're, you're a very atmospheric muso, though. I've got to say, Ivor, I remember you playing in the 80s when it was Flowers Becomes Ice House and all that sort of stuff, and there was smoke machines going and... Uh, the Ice House itself, that song was, was so atmospheric and you, you've sort of kept that going in a way into your film music as well and, and you know, you mentioned the ballet as uh, you, you do great pop songs but at the same time you like a bit of mood. Um, the thing about it is when you've got the great sort of backdrop of all the classical music, music that's ever been composed and a huge variety, I, every now and again I'll haul out something. I've got this relationship with my, here we are, this is a senior moment, <laughs> with my physiotherapist who is, he's probably nearly my age, if I'd be tr truthful about it, and he's an incredibly keen student of music, but mainly popular music, I guess, uh, probably of the kind of folk acoustic guitar type idiom. And I've been feeding him bits of classical music, which is a foreign world for him. And every now and again, I'll feed him something and go, have a listen to this. This is a suite of pieces by Modest Mazorsky called Pictures at an Exhibition. And when you hear it, you'll, you'll hear large slabs of the Harry Potter music written by John Williams because it was so influential. And of course, these pieces of music have all that atmosphere that you're talking about. Any these incredible composers over the years, you know, Richard Strauss and uh, Claude Debussy, and who literally painted pictures. So Debussy, of course, known as probably the greatest um, impressionist composer of all time, abandoned the classical forms like the symphony, and he he started producing these big slabs of music, which he referred to as tone poems. One of the most famous being La Mer, the Sea. You get incredible pictures out of this music. You can see the rippling waves. You can hear the impending storm coming, um, you know, the great gusts of wind and then the, the angry sea crashing against the headland. And 
all this stuff. But I mean, that's I guess what I'm saying is it's not it's sort of no great mystery really when you've got all that repertoire of atmospheric music that you know that becomes part of the set of possibilities for even a a popular song. Yeah. Um, when I started out, of course, we kind of stumbled straight into you know, the hardest core punk period that probably ever existed. And for a start, I wasn't ever going to tell anybody that I was a highly trained classical musician. Musician, Since Johnny Rotten was saying the exact opposite, that in fact, to qualify for a punk band, you have to not be able to play any instrument at all. So it's taken a while for me to kind of come out, uh, as it were, um, as a classical musician. Um, and certainly it took vehicles like the ballets, the film scores and so on to have, you know, the full outlet of things that I could apply atmosphere to. But somewhere along the way, a lot of those little bits snuck into songs. I remember exactly where we debuted the song Ice House. It was at a, the Eastwood Hotel. Now, the Eastwood Hotel wasn't a big hotel on the kind of circuit of pub bands back then. And I think we only ever played there this one night. And originally the song Ice House didn't have all the big guitars joining it at the end. It, it was just synthesizer and drums. And it was a fairly hardcore, dressed in black, you know, razor blades and and safety pins type punk audience. And I remember thinking, we are going to get absolutely slaughtered for playing this thing because up to that point, we'd been playing hard and fast guitar music and then suddenly everything stopped and it was just synthesizers and a drum kit. Mm. Uh, but we survived and I made the addition of the loud guitars at the end as mm. a, a kind of afterthought really. But yeah, we, we thought at the time, this is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. <laughs> Hey, I have a, a previous guest on this podcast spoke about her mortality clock, which was she had reached a certain age and then she was starting to, you know, count down what she thought were the years that she had left. Have you ever thought about that? No, I don't think of it in those terms. I think of it in a far more random uh, way. You know, I worked for uh, many, many, many decades with a fellow who I considered to be my best friend. And he was my music editor on Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, that very big uh, film score that I did. And then he randomly got cancer and died. And so I don't think of it in the kind of logical countdown sense because there is no logic um, in the countdown. Uh, it can be, um, you know, I walk out this, you know, this morning, get hit by a bus or whatever. So I tend not to try and dwell on that because I think it's far more random. Mm. It's quite fragile, isn't it? Is there anything you fear about getting old? Well, certainly, I've, you know, I've watched both of my parents deteriorate and um, my mother was bedridden for three years and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. You know, I, I think I prefer the bus kind of uh, outcome, really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, well, that's where, you know, touring for you, Ivor, will keep you young, I, I would guess. I mean, you're about to embark at this point in time on a, another wide Australian tour. Uh, and also, it, it, strangely enough, there's a little bit of history in there too because I'm, you're doing the Opera House forecourt on December the 12th, something I guess you would have done the Opera House a number of times. The Opera House itself has just turned 50. Uh, so you playing there is also a part of history. Here's the other thing that you may not know was that uh, we were actually scheduled to play on the Opera House forecourt on December the 12th last year. And in November, I got COVID. 
And we had to blow out the four biggest shows of the year, one being um, the Melbourne uh, Maya Music Bowl and the last one of the year, the 12th of December, the Opera House, which broke my heart. Oh. All of the beginning of this year, I was praying and praying and praying and praying that we would get a spot at the Opera House because the Opera House is booked out for years into the future. Um, so it's not that easy to kind of ring them up and go, oh, excuse me, can we, can we, can we just, have Wednesday? <laughs> can we have Wednesday? Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of full circle moment for me because it's exactly the same date a year later. Oh, fantastic. Hey, and so do you take any measures to stay fit? I think I read somewhere that you play golf. Do you still? Uh, yes, I do regularly, and I'm incredibly bad at it. <laughs> and fortunately, I have just exactly the the right temperament, and I play with um, a predominantly one fellow who's got exactly the right temperament too, which is that we um fairly liberal with the rules, and the whole exercise is more about kind of mental health than anything else, which mm. it's an incredibly beautiful, tiny little course uh, with lots of wildlife, and it stares out over the water, and it's uh, incredibly sort of mentally therapeutic and I actually crave you know when I've been away for say a weekend like the one I've just done where I've been focused on working and everything's leading towards that show on Saturday night watching my blood pressure for the first time because I've got a brand new blood pressure monitor which is incredibly portable so it's um, not is there any fallback on the blood pressure monitor well the thing is I've never actually measured it in the in the hours leading up to going on stage and it was kind of terrifying because it sort of went through the roof and I had no idea that that was actually going on in my body. But anyway, I guess what I'm getting t- towards is it's an incredible amount of kind of mental preparation and anxiety and adrenaline that sort of goes into stepping onto a stage. And then, of course, you've got the two hours plus or whatever of that sort of concentration. And then the next day, of course, as this one was, it was a very big travel day. So it involved two, two flights, took all day and I didn't get home until four o'clock in the afternoon. Having uh, sort of regrouped last night, what I will be doing today is getting out on a golf course and kind of mentally, um, what's the word, debriefing, I guess, is probably the the way to put it. They say it spoils a good walk, though, golf. Well, only if you let it, really. I think that's, you know, people who, I've played with some people who take it incredibly seriously, and and I've watched them, and it's kind of soul-destroying, really. Mm. You know, to get angry at a golf ball is the, the... but biggest waste of time and effort I think you could possibly ever um, you could ever apply. You know, I just sit, I watch the ducks. You know, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. I like that. So, Ivor, um, is there anything that you are looking forward to about becoming an old man? Do you think your children yeah. will look after yeah, you exactly. as as you get older? Have you got grandkids? I've just uh, I've just uh, become a grandfather. Yes. Um, Oh, look, I think I've learned to be pretty kind of independent over the last, especially 15, 14 years. Um, I have a long-term partner. We don't um, live together, and so it works particularly well, and she gets to go off and see all sorts of exotic places because I'm still on tour. So that's one of the Mm. good things about being on tour. We've been to some incredible places this year. So we played the Big Red Bash, which was out beyond Birdsville. Mm. So this is to... 15,000 people, it's referred to as the most remote festival in the world. It's, and it's in the middle of the desert. It's incredible. And then two weeks later, we played the Monday Monday Bash, which is probably the second most remote um, festival in the world. 
in South Australian deserts. You know, when we play these incredible places, it's it's a privilege. I just sort of think, wow, this is a great way to see Australia. Yeah, no, fantastic. And and also, you get to see it from a completely different perspective than most people just doing the tourism thing, don't you? You get to know the locals and, and all the people behind it. Yeah, you do meet some amazing people. And I, I don't know how these events actually kind of started because it, it is really the maddest idea possible to, to expect that you know, 13,000, 15,000 people are all going to arrive in their camper vans and their mobile homes and build a kind of uh, a temporary city and then watch music for five days or whatever, however long it goes in the middle of nowhere. It's, incre- yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I'm just wondering, what you know, what are the superpowers that experience and age have given you, Ivan? For me, the most useful thing is I can kind of, I can see some things coming. The experience will um, kind of go, okay, I've been here before. I can, I can add up all the possibilities that are going to happen. It comes down to a simple thing, for example, this might sound strange, but I said to my daughter's partner, I sent him a text and he was going in to see Paul McCartney on Friday night. And I said, look, I've got a little sense of this uh, based on information that I've got from various sources and so on and so forth, that you might be better off uh, considering public transport to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I got a text back from, from my daughter the next day going, that was the most unbelievable concert I've ever been to. The line from the car park only started moving at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> It's called, it's called wisdom That's and experience. And I said, I thought to myself, one of these days you may learn to listen to what I've actually said. Fantastic. <laughs> Could save you a bit of mucking around. And you're touring with Simple Minds, I think, yeah. too. Simple Minds. We're, we're touring with Simple Minds next year, so that'll be fantastic because um, Jim and I go back a long way. And in actual fact, I've got this sort of magnetic wall in my kitchen with all these photographs up on it and... At least two of them are, are us wandering around Notting Hill in our 20s. Both of you look absolutely gorgeous. I've seen those old black and white photos. Divine. Hey, Ivor, it's been a delight to chat. Thank you so much for joining us on Suddenly Senior. Thanks, Ivor. What a pleasure. Thank you. See you. Please like and also subscribe. Thank you for listening. I'm Angela Caterns. I'm Ian Rogerson. Leave a comment, as long as it's nice. <laughs> if it's not, that's right. fuck off. Yes. See you next time, Ange. Bye. And I want wine with my meds. <laughs> <laughs>